Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Okay, we're now in the conclusion of Paul's great letter to the Romans. His conclusion begins with this passage this morning. It's actually the longest conclusion of any of his letters. Makes sense since it's the longest presentation of the gospel that we have in any of his letters. Just think what Paul has covered. Chapter 1, verse 16, all the way through chapter 11, verse 36. It's all doctrine. With some exhortations to holiness in chapter 6, and of course the doxology of praise to God, and both in the 11th chapter and the 8th chapter, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, Paul. He can't talk about the truth without worshiping. So we find that intermingled in his doctrinal presentation, his worship. But now we're coming to this conclusion. And I hope that you find the conclusion not only interesting, but edifying. There's treasures here. And there's treasures when he starts greeting people. We're going to see that. Some wonderful things in chapter 16. Let me read verses 14 to 21. Remember how Paul just concluded the doctrinal section with verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's the end of the doctrinal section. Now, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers... And we might add, and my sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly. Oh, yes, he has. By way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that by the offering of the Gentiles, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, 
And those who have never heard will understand. It's a mighty section. Full of some glorious things that Paul tells us here. Now in the, in the conclusion, chapter 15 especially, he actually returns to what he talked about in the first chapter, but he elaborates on it. Namely, his ministry to Gentiles, his calling to the Gentiles, and then later his travel plans, which is in the next section of chapter 15. His plan to go to Rome. But then we learn he's going to Rome kind of as a place to stop off at on his way to Spain. So he's not done with his ministry. He's continuing to press on. Now it doesn't turn out as he expected. He ends up going to Rome, but three years later, and as a prisoner in chains. Of course, this is all laid out to us by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles. So let's look, first of all, in verses 14 and 15, how Paul affirms the believers at Rome. He affirms them. He he commends them. Now, think of it for a minute. Paul did not visit this church ever. But he had been intending to go for years to Rome. I mean, this is the capital of the world empire. This is the center of the Gentile world, and he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he wanted to go to Rome. But God had prevented him from going all those years. Thank God that Paul was prevented because we have the epistle to the Romans because he didn't go to Rome. But he intended to go all those years, but he did not found that church. He's not the founder of the church at Rome. We don't know how the church was founded exactly. There could have been believers that were saved on the day of Pentecost who came from that part of the world and they took the gospel back to Rome and it spread. We don't know exactly. So Paul's not the founder of this church and he had never visited. So there's probably in Paul's mind the thought that they may not be real open to him and his letter and how he comes across to them. And so Paul... I believe in this section, he's, he's trying to disarm them a little bit. He's, he's using a lot of tact here. He's, using, he's very personal. He's warm with them in order to open them to his letter, that they will receive this from him. So notice he says that he's satisfied or he's uh, convinced, some of your translations may have that. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. I just get the spirit in which he's saying this. He's satisfied about what? Well, he's satisfied about their spiritual growth, their spiritual maturity. Notice how he breaks it down. He says that they... Now, how did Paul know all this about them? Having not visited, how would he know that they're, this is a congregation full of goodness? Yeah, they, they have a superabundant of kindness and generosity to one another. What a hallmark of a church. How did Paul know that? Well, in chapter 16, he greets Aquila and Priscilla, his good friends from Corinth, who eventually went back to Rome. 
He probably had some communication from his good friends about how that church was. So Paul is bringing up these things that were marks of them. They're full of goodness. Wonderful thing to say about them. Not only that, but they're filled with knowledge. Filled with all knowledge. So he, he, he doesn't want them to think that he thinks they're defective or deficient in their knowledge of Christianity, although he writes this great letter to them to fill in the blanks, to add to their knowledge. Rather, they, they had a comprehensive understanding of the Christian faith. And he says that they are able to, ins- to instruct one another. Now, the word for instruct here is an interesting word because there's a whole system of counseling from the 1970s based on the Greek word here. It's called nuthetic counseling. And this word has to do with admonishing and warning. And there are some Christian counselors that take that approach to counseling. When you come, they're going to go right to the problem in your life, which is sin. And they will warn you, instruct you, encourage you with the Word of God along that line. That's nuthetic counseling, competent to counsel. All based on this word that Paul uses. But that's the idea of this word. It is to correct bad behavior with warning, teaching, encouragement, reminding a person of their duty. He says they're able to do that. So Paul is commending the church there. Now he says, and by way of reminder, verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Well, why did you write to us, Paul, if we have all this knowledge and we're full of goodness, we're, we're spiritually mature? Why this letter? Well, this, here it is right here. He's writing by way of reminder. You know, the book of Romans is a reminder that we don't know all that can be known about Christianity. This, this epistle reveals that there's a lot more to the Christian faith than God loves you and Christ died for you. There is a depth to the Christian faith that we find in Romans. This is why we wanted to go through it. To fill out our understanding of the truth. It's really around the theme, the gospel of God. So Paul's writing by way of reminder, very boldly, and, and notice this that he adds at the end of verse 15, because of the grace given, to, given me by God, and so on, to be a minister to the Gentiles. So in other words, Paul is telling the church that they are within the sphere of his responsibility. This is, he had grace in, as his calling, his appointment to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So the church comes within the realm of his calling. And so he, he affirms his right to address them in this letter. 
Now, verse 16, and I'm making this a, a separate point, he explains the nature of his ministry. And he explains it in a way that we don't find anywhere else in his writings. Notice what he says about his ministry. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. He doesn't use that language anywhere else. He doesn't use that explanation of his ministry, a priestly ministry. So I want to elaborate on that for a minute. The idea of being a minister, a word that is frequently used, the idea of that originally was somebody who performed a public service without charge. That's the idea of a minister. They're not in it for money. They're doing something for the good of others, so they're a minister. Now, it's applied now to the apostle. And notice he is a minister of Christ. That really is, can be viewed two ways. He has his ministry from Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of his ministry. He has calling by Christ in Acts 9. But he's also the minister for Jesus Christ. That is the one who he is, in whose name he is ministering and whose cause he is representing by his ministry. So he is the minister of Christ to the Gentiles. We know that. I've gone over that so many times. This is his sphere of responsibility. But now he says, in the priestly service. This is, this is wonderful that he puts it like this. I'm so glad he used this. It gives me a whole different take on what I'm doing. The priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, notice what his offering is. There's a great difference between the priest and a prophet. The, a prophet was God's representative to the people. That's what a prophet is. He came with the message of God. He speaks in the name of the Lord. The priest is the exact opposite. He is representing the people to God. He's the mediator between the people and God. And he comes with his offering. This is the primary way by which he makes things right between God and man. So Paul, in his ministry, is performing the work of a priest, he says. He's in the priestly service of the people. Now, what is his offering? What is he bringing to God? He's bringing his Gentile converts. This is his offering. And those converts, in turn, when they're really converted, when they're really saved, they offer themselves to God. Remember how the whole section of when Paul applies the gospel of God, beginning in chapter 12? How does Paul begin? Chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. So the converts, the Gentile converts then, they present themselves to God when they're saved. To be in His service. 
They present their bodies. The bodies especially, that's the area of where sin takes place. That's the playground of sin. This is the area that is first and foremost the area that needs to be sanctified, that we need to present to God, is our bodies. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, and this is your reasonable service. And as the Old Testament sacrifices and offerings had to be sanctified, they had to be set apart for God, even so Paul's offering is sanctified. Do you catch that? The end of verse 16. That the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. How are they acceptable? Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's how. This is how any of us are acceptable to God. Sanctification is part of the salvation process. It follows justification. Now, justification is a one act. That, that the being declared righteous by God, when we become a believer, that is an act, a declaration of God concerning our standing before Him. But don't mix it up with sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing, day-by-day process to the end of life. That is being separated from sin, being more and more dedicated, devoted to God and His service. It's sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, verses 17 to 19, point number three, Paul glories in what Christ has done through him. Paul glories. He even uses the word proud. But he, 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 he words it in a way so you don't get the wrong impression. He's not patting himself on the back. Is he bragging? Well, yeah, but he's bragging under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's no, there's no sinful pride here. But I want you to note how he does it. It's, it's, it's good how, he, how Paul does it. He says, verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I'm just saying, okay, Paul's work for God. What an amazing life he lived. And what amazing things God did through him. And this is what he goes on to say. So when he talks about my work for God, you've got to put it with what comes right after that. When he says, verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So my work for God equals what Christ has accomplished through me. So he gives all the glory back to God. But he was the, he was the, the agent of it. He was the one who carried out the work. Nobody did it for Paul. Paul did it himself. But it was the Lord Jesus Christ working through him. And that's what the Acts of the Apostles are. I like the name of of Luke's second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, but some have properly said they're also the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles. They're the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. So we need to always put it together, my work for God, but it's what Jesus Christ accomplished through me. And Paul says this in other places. He says, 
to the church at Corinth, chapter 15, verse 10. He said, I, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. I worked harder. I did more than any. Now he's talking about Peter. The rest of them. He labored more abundantly than any of those men did. But then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God which is in me. So he's always careful to give the credit where the credit is due. Now, in light of that, just remember what Jesus said. John 15 and verse 5. Apart from me, separated from me, you can do nothing. And we all gladly ad, not only admit that, but we confess that. We want you to know this. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. He's the real agent here that is at work in us. And what was Paul's work? Except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles... To obedience. Let's stop right there for a second. To bring the Gentiles to obedience. Notice he puts it like that. He doesn't say to bring the Gentiles to faith. Now he does he means that actually, but he's using he's putting it in terms of obedience. Remember what he's talked about in the first chapter about his calling as an apostle? It was to bring the nations to the obedience. Of faith. There he puts it together. Your response to the gospel in faith is an act of obedience. And this this is how we need to see it. Because God commands us to believe. He commands us to repent. Those are not options. When we hear the gospel, we are duty-bound to respond to it. In faith, to believe it, to not believe it, to say, I, I just reject this. It's, uh, it's tantamount to saying God is a liar, number one. We're not believing the testimony of God. We're calling him a liar. I don't believe this. And the sin compounds on top of that. The sin of unbelief. Many think the sin of unbelief is the greatest sin that can be forgiven. Paul says the obedience of faith. He's going to repeat that at the very end in chapter 16. Very last verse. To bring about the obedience of faith. Verse 26. Remember what he said of Israel in chapter 10? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Chapter 10 and verse 16. So this is how we need to think of faith. Faith is an act of obedience to the Word of God. Not to believe is is an act of defiance and disobedience. And so we read Paul writing in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 1. That Jesus Christ is going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That obey not the gospel. That's a way of saying that they were unbelievers. 
They did not respond in faith. Now, this is how Paul sees it. Now, how did now how did Paul bring the Gentiles to obey? He tells us. So the goal of his preaching was to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now here's the means. How did he do it? Very simple. By word and deed. So he had to preach the gospel. He had to verbalize it. He did this in the marketplace. He did went to the synagogue and engaged in conversation. He did it in those situations we read in Acts where he had a, a crowd of people to speak to. By word and notice he says, and deed. What does Paul mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain. What is the deed? By the power of signs and wonders. Now, that's the technical phrase used in the New Testament for miracles. Signs and wonders. It's used over and over again in the book of Acts. Paul uses it elsewhere in his letter to Corinth. Signs and wonders. That that is the definition, as it were, of a miracle. And each of those words means something. When he says signs, that is telling us that a miracle had a purpose, that it was pointing to something. It was there was a reason for the miracle. It was a sign. Remember in the beginning when God created the universe, on the fourth day he created the sun and the stars and the moon, all the heavenly bodies that give light to the earth and distinguish between night and day. And one of the things that the, that the heavens do is, he, it says in Genesis 1, they are for signs. Did you ever catch that? As well as seasons and the separation of day and night. Signs. They said to Jesus, show us a sign from heaven. But Jesus said in the, the Olivet Discourse that there are, it, before he comes, there's going to be signs in the heavens. Great signs. So we need to pay attention to what's going on in the universe. And we have all these wonderful things that they're now looking into deep space with and giving, bringing clarity to what's in the heavens. But there's going to be a disruption of the heavens in a way that's going to impact the earth before Jesus Christ comes. So so miracles are for signs in that sense. There's a divine purpose. God is saying something. He's tapping people on the shoulder with a miracle. But then Paul calls it a wonder, a sign and a wonder. A wonder is emphasizing the unusual character of, of the miracle. There's something supernatural going on here. It's a wonder. Now we got to be careful because in this day and age there are lying signs and wonders. Paul uses that language. Meaning they're either fake or they're real and intended to deceive. Either way, lying signs and wonders. So Paul... Ministry was confirmed by the miraculous. We find that in the book of Acts. And then Paul even adds this, and by the power of the Spirit of God. So you see he's building here. This is is how he brought the Gentiles to obedience. 
First of all, generally, by word and deed, now specifically, signs and wonders, and then he has to add, the real power and agent behind it all is the Holy Spirit. He told the church at Corinth, when he came to them, he came in fear and trembling, declaring the testimony of God. And his preaching was not in enticing words of men and in eloquence and all that, but in power and demonstration of the Spirit when he went to Corinth. The Holy Spirit was in his his preaching. So that, verse 19, so that from Jerusalem all the way around, an interesting Greek word that's translated all the way around, means a circle or an arch, It could refer to the fact that Paul, in his missionary journeys, he kind of made a loop. It could refer to that. But notice the extent of his ministry at this point when he's writing. He says, from Jerusalem. Did Paul preach in Jerusalem? Yes, immediately after his conversion. Well, he's in Damascus for a while. He preached there. He preached outside Damascus and Arabia. Eventually, he went to Jerusalem, and he preached there as well. So he is preaching, but I think he also says Jerusalem, because that's where the Christian movement began. But all the the way from Jerusalem to in this other strange place that is not mentioned in the book of Acts, Illyricum, where is that? Well, if you look at Paul's third missionary journey on a map, You'll see that he went to Macedonia, that is Greece, where he went to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And if you go about 150 miles north of Berea, north of Macedonia, you come to Illyricum, which is what used to be Yugoslavia. But now it's all broken up in those different countries that we know as Croatia, Serbia, and so on. Although Luke does not record that Paul went there, on his third missionary journey in the first few verses of chapter 20 of the book of Acts, we could actually put his visit into Illyricum there. But Paul says that he went as far as there. I have, so he went from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, he's not saying he's done completely. He knows that he still needs to go to Rome. But he's telling us that he had fulfilled his assignment thus far. And how, what what was that assignment? Well, essentially was to evangelize those several regions that he went through, planting churches in the population centers of Asia, present-day Turkey, putting a church in, establishing a church in Ephesus, in those various cities where the Gentiles were converted. He had fulfilled his divine assignment. In other words, he's been faithful to to his task. He has stayed with it. It's not done. He's not done yet. 
Now, in verses 20 and 21, I'm calling this Paul's ambition to do pioneer missions. Now, this is all part of what he's saying now. But we need to catch this. This is really a a beautiful thing that he says about his ministry. I hope that you're becoming familiar with the Apostle Paul by going through this. You're learning this man's heart. He's a great role model for Christians. My ambition, what is Paul's ambition? Verse 20. His ambition is to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. What does he mean by that? He wants to preach in unevangelized regions where no one has gone. They, there's no Christians there. There's no church. They do not yet know really who Jesus Christ is. He's not named. He's not acknowledged. He's not worshipped. This is how Paul saw himself. He's a trailblazer missionary. He's a pioneer missionary. Now, pioneer missionaries are some of the greatest biographies that you could read about. There have been many in church history. The original ones that we know about from the 18th century, David Brainerd. David Brainerd died when he was 29 years old. He spent seven years as a missionary to the Indians on the East Coast in Pennsylvania and New York. His diary is an amazing thing to read. He never intended anybody to see that diary. He didn't write it for public view. He wrote it for himself. But he died in the home of Jonathan Edwards. And he gave it to Jonathan Edwards, said you can do with it what you want. This is his diary. But to read the diary of David Brainerd will really move you. Many, many missionaries went to the mission field as pioneer missionaries as a result of reading Brainerd's diary. William Carey did, for example. I have a a book here called Five Pioneer Missionaries. This is on the life of John Eliot. Actually, he came from England and went to New England as a missionary to the Indians before Brainerd did. He did a different group, John Eliot, in the 1600s. He spent 50 years and translated the New Testament into a very difficult Indian language. They have a copy of his translation at the Huntington Library up in San Marino. If you want to see it, plus a big painting of John Eliot. His story is in here, David Brainerd. Henry Martin. Henry Martin went to Persia. William Colmer Burns went to China. John G. Patton went to the South Sea Islands. Anyhow, if anybody wants to read that, these are stirring essays. Banner of Truth had a contest back in the 60s for writers to present an essay on one of these pioneer missionaries, and they had several submissions, and then they decided which ones were going to be published, and five of the best are in this book. And you're welcome, if anyone would like to borrow that and read that. 
So Paul adds here why he wanted why he wanted it to preach only where Christ had not been named. He says, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So he really saw himself as one who was called to lay the foundation, to use his metaphor of a building in 1 Corinthians 3. That he said, I, I laid the foundation, and then, there were, and then others come after him, and they build on Paul's foundation. But Paul didn't want to do it the reverse. He didn't want to build on someone else's foundation. He switched the metaphor up in 1 Corinthians 3, and he talked about it as a field, being a farmer, sowing seed. Remember how he put it there? He said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. So he, he sees himself as laying the foundation, planting the seed. This was Paul's ministry. Verse 21. But as it is written, we would know that Paul would bring in the Old Testament to support what he just said. And really what he's telling us here is that his ministry is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Because the, the quotation here is from Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, verse 15. Notice what it says. In the context of kings and nations being stunned by the servant of Yahweh, which then leads right into Isaiah 53, the great prophetic section of the sufferings of Yahweh's servant, righteous servant. Those who have never been told, this is how he's describing now the Gentiles. See, where Christ has not been named, those who have never been told, no one's gone to them with the glorious gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Those who had never been told of him will see. You know, Jesus talks about faith in those terms in John 6. He talks about seeing the Son. Because there is a sense when you become a believer... You see Jesus Christ in a way you never saw him before. That's a part of, the, of, of what happens when you're regenerated, when you become a believer. You see the Son for the first time. Because Remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the unbeliever, he is blind. His mind has been blind to the glory of Christ, to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So one of the things that happens when we become a believer is that we see now the, the Lord of glory. We see who Jesus really is. Those who had never been told of him will see him. And those who have never heard will understand. Clearly he's talking about the Gentiles and Paul's ministry to the Gentile world was a fulfillment of Isaiah's words from chapter 52. It's really wonderful. Now I want to conclude this sermon by acquainting you with William Carey's book. And I, I'm sure I mentioned it to you before. William Carey's little book. Now who's William Carey? He was a missionary who went to, to India in the late 18th century. 17. Well, his little booklet here was published in 1792. 
This is the famous, the reason why I want to acquaint you with this is because this is a very famous work in the history of missions. And I want you to know about it. And I have a copy of it. Not an original, but it's a facsimile, an exact copy of the original Carey's Inquiry. They call it the Inquiry. Carey's Inquiry. Whenever you hear that, they're talking about this book. This is the title. An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Now, why did he feel it necessary to write something like this? Because he lived in a time when hyper-Calvinism had paralyzed the Baptist churches in, in England. They were extreme to the point of believing that if God wants to save the heathen, he will do it apart from you or me. This was their attitude of the church. And William Carey saw the error of that. And he wanted to break that. And he stood up in a meeting to speak to that, and he was shut down by another member of, of this Baptist society he was a part. So anyhow, he wrote this book. It's divided into five parts. And from the introduction uh, by not William Carey, but another man, uh, they, he says this of this book. He said, even a brief outline of the contents shows that the inquiry deals with the questions of missionary apologetic strategy and support, which are still surprisingly relevant. So, And this is what William Carey does. He gives an apologetic for being a missionary. First of all, that's the first chapter. It has to do with... Is the Great Commission still binding on the church? Jesus commanded the apostles to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Does that still apply today? And so he makes a very simple argument. I mean, he's just so straightforward, so honest, it's so clear how he does it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, a little before his departure, commissioned his apostles to go and teach all the nations. Or as another evangelist expresses it, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This commission was, an extensive, was as extensive as possible and laid them under obligation to disperse themselves into every country of the habitable globe and preach to all the inhabitants without exception or limitations. You get right off the heart of William Carey. And he goes on to argue that this is still part of the church's task. And then I want to turn you to this section over here. Um, In the third section of the book, he surveys the entire globe, all the countries, how many people live there, and what their predominant religion is. And... You know, it it looks like this. There's several pages. This is Africa. He's got all the countries. And this is what he says after surveying the world. The inhabitants of the world, according to this calculation, amounts to about 731 million. So back in 1792, there was less than a billion people on the face of the earth that they knew. 730 
million. Then he adds this. 420 million of whom are still in pagan darkness. So this is, this is his approach. This man was gripped by the fact that most of the world was lost, was in darkness. This is what moved him to go to India. And he went to India with two other men. There were three of them. And they were called the greatest trio of missionary history. Marsh, Ward, and Carey. They did all this translation work into various Indian languages and dialects. And this man, he just plodded along. He never went, he never went on furlough. Once he went to India, he stayed there for a long time. Never had a furlough. Never went back to England. Though he had correspondence with some of the men there. And that's, they know about what he was, went through, through the correspondence. And then finally, so this is the missionaries that he's trying to inspire with this book. The missionaries must be men of great piety, prudence, courage, and forbearance. And we would add women, because there have been great missionary women who have gone into the world as well. Of undoubted orthodoxy in their sentiments, in other words, they need to be sound in their view of Christianity, have the correct doctrine of the faith, and they must enter with all their hearts into the spirit of their mission. They must be willing to leave all the comforts of life behind them and to encounter the hardships of a torrid or a frigid climate, an uncomfortable manner of living, and every other inconvenience that can attend this undertaking. Now, he had not yet gone to India, but he knew what he was going to face when he went there. He knew what was going to involve so he's, he says these things. And then he mentions some of the things that they got to take. But I like what he goes on to say. He says, the, their first business when they get there, their first business is to gain some acquaintance with the language of the inhabitants. And by all lawful means to endeavor to cultivate a friendship with them. And as soon as possible, let them know the errand for which they were sent to them. That takes time. If you're in another language, how are you going to tell them? Well, I'm here to tell you about Jesus Christ. I'm here as his servant. Oh, this is going to take some time. They must endeavor to convince them that it was their good alone which induced them to forsake their friends and all the comforts of their native country. They must be careful not to resent injuries which may be offered to them, nor to think highly of themselves so as to despise the poor heathens and by those means lay a foundation for their resentment or the rejection of the gospel. They must take every opportunity of doing them good, and laboring and traveling night and day, they must instruct, exhort, and rebuke with all long suffering, 
an anxious desire for them, and above all, must be instant in prayer for the effusion of the Holy Spirit upon the people of their charge. I just wanted to bless you with that. I mean, this is, this is a great work. Acquaint yourself with Carrie's inquiry. It's very stirring. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.